give us a little taste of how these two worlds intersect. How do precious metals, gems, diamonds interconnect with fraud and organized crime? Introducing The Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello everybody, this is Mike Carroll, International President of the IAFCI. I'm with Mark Solomon. Mark is our International Vice President of the IAFCI. Mark, how are you doing today? Mr. President, I am doing well. We're getting a little bit warmer here out in the East Coast. We're in the 50s. I'm ready for shorts and t-shirts, I'm telling you. And Mark, you're in Connecticut. I'm here in Chicago. And again, we have another great show. How about it? Uh, This is really good, Mike. We got a little international intrigue here. We are really excited about our guest this evening. We have with us Kelly Ross, who is a financial crime specialist and expert in the criminal use of diamond gemstones and precious metals. He was a 24-year veteran of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police before retiring and is really a subject matter expert in the area of diamonds, gemstones, and precious metals. He has a master's degree in criminal intelligence analysis and focuses his research on the use of jewelry by organized drug tracking enterprises. He is an author, and he is also the chair of the Jewelers Vigilance Canada Loss Prevention Committee and a director of the Canadian Diamond Code of Conduct Committee. We want to welcome to the show today, Kelly Ross. Appreciate that. Thanks for the wonderful intro. Hi, Kelly. This is Mike. Hey, listening to your background and reading your bio, you had a career in law enforcement. So I'd like to start out right off the top. How did your career in police result in a specialization in diamond and precious metal crimes? Yeah, you know, uh, that was an interesting story unto itself, but, you know, uh, I'll cut to the chase. In um, 1998, Canada became a diamond producer with one single diamond mine in uh, Northwest Territories in Canada. That single diamond mine put Canada at the number five diamond producer in the world, just like that. And so there was a hurry-up offense came out of nowhere where uh, the executive in the RCMP were looking for people that had some sort of experience or background in geology or gemology or that kind of thing. And turns out I had both. I went to school, went to university in earth science and studied geology. And uh, it's a passion of mine, been a passion of mine since I was a kid. And even while I was in the RCMP, before all this diamond stuff happened in, in Canada, uh, I went on to uh, get uh, diplomas in uh, gemology from a couple of different schools in Canada. And so, uh, as it happens in, in the RCMP back in that time period, they have this thing called fingerpoint democracy. And, and they said, you with the, the diplomas and <laughs> degrees, uh, who loves rocks, you're going to be our diamond guy. And uh, so I kind of fell into that position. And it was a really, uh, really spectacular career move because... Well, it just started off as diamonds. It exploded into gold and gemstones, and it wasn't just rough diamonds for diamond mines. It became money laundering and the full gamut. It involved uh, working with the FBI, um, Belgium National Police, Israeli police, uh, very international in scope, and went from you know robberies and thefts to very quickly to where we're talking about organized criminal involvement. So it was a really uh, interesting job. I always said I had the best job in the RCMP before I retired. 
Well, Kelly, uh, there can't be many experts out there in this type of field uh, that have your experience. And, you know, you talked a little bit about working with different law enforcement agencies, not only in Canada, but internationally as well. So you must uh, be in demand, and I'm sure you probably still are in demand, even though you're retired from law enforcement. Yeah, you know, I do a lot of work with police agencies around the globe uh, and um, different organizations as well. I most recently was plugged into the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime. They were studying an international movement of illicit gems, diamonds, and precious metals in a conference that was hosted out um, out of Europe recently. So I get involved in in those types of conferences, I work directly with police agencies, crown prosecutors, you know, the whole spectrum, whatever, wherever there's a need to understand the criminal use of diamonds, gemstones, and precious metals, that's usually where I'm called to assist. And can you give us a little a taste of, of how these two worlds intersect? How do precious metals, gems, diamonds interconnect with fraud and organized crime? Oh, Yeah. It's fraud and organized crime, but it's a massive spectrum. You know, the organized criminals, they'll they'll be in everything. So, you know, drug trafficking is super common for use of these commodities within it. Um, Frauds, of course, are these commodities are spectacular um, for generating profits for criminal organizations. Smuggling of of these products, particularly you think about um, rough diamonds, blood diamonds, in particular, conflict diamonds, the thing that has been going on for two decades now, tax evasion, uh, money laundering, you know, human trafficking even has its foothold in this as well because of the type of commodity that it is. It's, you know, diamonds, gemstones, precious metals, they're data symbols for organized criminals, depending on where they are in the criminal hierarchy. Uh, you know, they can be used as an alternate currency. Uh, they're used for generating profits. Uh, they use them for wealth storage. So um, they can be used in you know, pretty much any criminal organization you think of. These commodities can either be used for generating profits, for moving money to launder, uh, or for storage of wealth. So, um, you know, you, you just have to put your mind to it and realize uh, how uh, wonderful these kind of commodities are for criminal organizations. Hey, Kelly, you mentioned blood diamonds, and for our audience that might not know, what are blood diamonds, and how did they get that name? Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, this actually goes back uh, a couple decades now. Uh, What happened was there was uh, significant conflicts occurring in diamond-producing nations of West Africa, and the center, the hub of that would be, uh, like, the Ivory Coast. And... um, what happened in these countries? They were going through uh, their own civil war, per se, and uh, the various uh, groups that were fighting were using diamonds as a commodity to purchase munitions to, to um, furnish uh, their side of the war. So they would get uh, munitions purchased with diamonds and um, use those munitions to, um, you know, to gain advantage in the war. But uh, as a function of the conflict, there was uh, terrible uh, civilian atrocities that were perpetrated uh, not only in getting the diamonds but within the wars themselves. And uh, hence was the, the name uh, Blood Diamond was coined uh, around that. And it uh, it went on for a number of years before finally people um, started to say that, you know, there's got to be a way to deal with these. And the international organizations and um, uh, companies came together 
to develop a, uh, a trading program and a certification program called the Kimberly Process, which really was designed to certify that diamonds came from a non-conflict country or were uh, non-conflict in origin. And it was sort of the first of its kind for tracing and tracking diamonds. Um, and, and, you know, what's really interesting about uh, the conflict diamonds, I'm really glad you brought it up, because it actually brings back, it, it brings a whole bunch of things into relief. Um, not only, we, you know, we're talking about international cooperation around these things, because we're seeing that more and more now with FETF. They started uh, guidance as it relates to money laundering, as it relates to dealers in precious metals and stones, again, international. But going back to the blood diamonds part of it, um, we're, we're talking about using diamonds in the raw, uncut form to trade for munitions. There's an alternate currency, and they're basically fueling a terrorist or quasi-terrorist organization. So when we talk about where does the whole idea that uh, gems, diamonds, uh, illicit gold, whatever the case may be, could be used to funnel conflicts or could be used within uh, terrorist organizations or whatnot, you can finger point over to that and say, it's, it, it, right there, there's the greatest contemporary example of it uh, in, in our recent history. So, uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Hey, Kelly, I'm hearing you're saying that, you know, diamonds and precious metals are being used for munitions, uh, human trafficking, uh, money laundering. But what is the actual appeal of that using, you know, precious metals and diamonds? Why not cash? Why do they like using precious metals and diamonds? Oh yeah, you know what? There's um, it really depends on on the criminal, for sure, and where they are on the criminal hierarchy, how they make their uh, profits from criminal adventures. But uh, you know, you just think if we just take the basic form you know, of stealing, we go just talk about theft or robbery, that kind of thing, and you talk about. Um, the relative size of these things, most, uh, you know, pieces of jewelry, uh, diamonds, gold, they're small and uh, compact, easy to conceal. High value, we all know this. Everybody knows this, and we talk about this as something that everybody knows. But what's really interesting is some of the research that's been done around this. And 10, 15 years ago, there was a fantastic study done out of the United Kingdom as it relates to uh, why criminals have a desire for various products. Why are they going to why are they going to go after, you know, televisions or why are they if they do a residential break in enter, let's say or or what a burglary or, or why are they going to uh, steal electronics or uh, household furniture whatever the case may be. And in interviewing hundreds of incarcerated criminals this researcher found out that there's very particular qualities about products that made them very appealing. So to your question, what makes them appealing? I'm going to give you an acronym, and it's called CRAVED. It stands for Concealable, Removable, Available, Valuable, Enjoyable, and Disposable. And that was the acronym that came out of this study that was, uh, like I said, about 15 years ago. As it relates to diamonds, gemstones, and precious metals, you think about uh, in the form of jewelry, uh, concealable for sure, removable, easily removable. It's not like, uh, you know, hauling up one of those old uh, 42-inch tube TVs, uh, you know, from the 1990s that somebody would be trying to haul out of somebody's basement. Things weighed about three, 400 pounds. Jewelry is, you know, just a few ounces. Availability is huge, and I'm going to talk about that in a second because um, there's so much availability in North America. The other one is valuable. Obviously, they're very valuable on dollar for dollar. They can be more valuable than other commodities that are stolen out of uh, residences. 
Enjoyable, they can be enjoyable, depends on the criminal, how they use them, and then there's disposability. And one of the things that comes down to disposability is that also the traceability around it. And uh, diamond stems and precious metals are, are very untraceable compared to other products. And so uh, this really increases their values to criminals. Now, I mentioned just a second ago about uh, availability, and I want to touch on that because, uh, you know, we're talking about the North American market right here in the United States and Canada, and about uh, $70 to $80 billion of diamond jewelry sold globally every year, and North America consumes about half of that, which is pretty remarkable. So half of all that diamond jewelry purchased uh, globally happens right here in North America, but we only have about 5.5, maybe 6% of the global population. So the amount of jewelry that people have in their homes that the average person um, carries you know, with them either on their necks and their ears, chains around their, uh, their necks, uh, they, they keep in their jewelry boxes significant. And, and so not only do we have the ability to go to a jewelry store on virtually any street corner or mall, in Canada, the U.S., and buy jewelry, we can also dispose of it there, too. And criminals take advantage of that, and that goes back to the, the D and the craved I was talking about, the ease of uh, not only uh, acquisition or availability, but the ease of disposal is really high in North America. And so there's a great propensity for using uh, these commodities in, in North America. And notwithstanding that, um, you know, there's uh, so much bought and sold in North America the same things hold true in other countries, other developed countries of the world. You look at um, Germany, uh, England, Australia, uh, France, residential break-in enters there. Gemstones, precious metals, uh, diamonds in the form of jewelry is often the first or second most stolen thing in residential break-in enters. And it's, um, it's exactly for the reasons we were just talking about. Kelly, it's a, it's amazing how, you know, to the average person, we look at a stone or a diamond or a gem and, and just see it as, you know, uh, a piece of jewelry or uh, something, you know, keepsake. But for the criminals, it seems like it can be so many different things. Like you said, it can be a payment for uh, criminal activity. It could be used to launder criminal proceeds and, and money and convert it into precious metals or gems or diamonds. So it's fascinating to hear how many different uses there are in the criminal world for this uh, type of stuff. I mean, we talk about cryptocurrency. It seems like uh, prior to cryptocurrency, there was gems and precious metals and diamonds that were a way of transferring proceeds and also uh, washing proceeds. Can you talk a little bit about the laundering aspect of and the use of diamonds and precious metals and gems? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I was talking about residential break and enter just the other, just a moment ago. And, you know, there's really no fantastic statistics on that um, as to how much jewelry is stolen out of residential break and enters in uh, Canada or the United States. A lot of people don't report them. Their deductibles uh, may be too high to warrant reporting that they lost a piece of jewelry or whatnot. But by several different accounts, we can extrapolate the number of break and enters per 100,000 population. That's the way Stats Canada and the United States Statistics uh, categorizes these things. 
So we know how much uh, how many break and enters are happening in the U.S. and Canada, and we, through uh, different sources, can extrapolate uh, what the approximate value per residential loss as it relates to jewelry is. And by all accounts, we should be seeing over a billion dollars worth of, of loss of jewelry alone to residential break and enters in North America. That is a spectacular wow. amount of money. And here's the the thing about that that really hits home because. When you look at the people, the street urchins, the, the low-level criminals that are, are, are doing these break-and-enters, what are they doing them for? Mostly they're taking them and they're trading them for drugs or they're trading them for cash, selling them for cash to buy drugs. And here's some great statistics around There's some fantastic research that was done around that that shows that up to a third of criminals that steal property through residential break-and-enters only, only trade their product for drugs. They don't sell them for cash. They only trade it for drugs. And so that means if we know this by, by way of research, by statistics, that this is happening, we know that then there are drug dealers out there with huge caches, huge quantities of jewelry that they are then disposing back into the legitimate market. And this goes to your question when you're talking about laundering. How do they get it back in there? Right? And we, uh, I talked earlier about the availability and disposability. Well, North America is fantastic for that. Almost every jewelry store that's an independent jewelry store buys jewelry off the street. Very difficult for them to determine whether or not it's stolen or not. You know, uh, I wear a wedding ring. Uh, very good chance uh, you guys are wearing a wedding wedding ring. There's a very good chance that none of them are custom made. And there's probably like the one on my hand. There was ten, twenty thousand of these made. So if it was stolen from me, how would I ever say that that ring is mine? Virtually impossible unless there's an inscription in it or something like that. So, so mm. getting it to a jeweler, having them buy jewelry off the street is part of their business model, and criminals are exploiting that to launder these products back into the legitimate market. Now, you've got me uh, really excited about this because as it relates to drug dealers, something changed in, um, in uh, the late 90s, and um, the drug dealers started to act as a fence, and they would actually just take the jewelry and trade. It was an alternate currency for them. But here's the thing about it. They're taking in on pennies on the dollar. So not only are they making money on the sale of their drugs that they marked up relative to that discount on the dollar, but when they sell the jewelry back to the legitimate market, they're making money hand over fist on that side of it as well. Two-step process for them, but spectacular profitability for them in their uh, criminal enterprise. Hey, Kelly, to go along with what you were saying about residential burglaries, the steel, jewelry, and gems, and diamonds, here in Chicago, I see alerts that come out regarding different types of criminal trends that are going on in the Chicago area. And one of them is the ruse burglary where uh, somebody will come up to the house, especially towards the elderly and, you know, tell them with the electric company and they need to see their fuse box or they're with the city and need to see the fence in the back. And once they distract them, two other co-conspirators will go into the house and ransack the house. And every time I see these alerts, it always says what was taken. It's always jewelry or cash. And like you were Absolutely. saying, a lot of that. Yeah. A lot of that has yeah. been resold. Yeah, well, that's it. You're nailing it because here's the thing. Um, 
If you go into virtually any residence, you're seeing jewelry is one of the number one things stolen. Well, it is in residential break-in areas. Why is it jewelry that the criminals steal? Well, there's two reasons for that. One, I talked about um, the, the uh, value of it is so high, the availability of it is there, but also because everybody stores it in their master bedroom, and the criminals know where to go get it. And so <laughs> we have these situations like you're talking about right now. Or just a residential break-in in it where people have gone, they, they live in the suburbs, they've headed into the city uh, for work or gone to school for the day or whatnot. Criminal is in the house for two minutes. They kick in the back door. They go immediately to the master bedroom because that's where the value is. It's in that jewelry box. They take the pillowcase off the bed, dump the pillow, throw the jewelry box in there, and then on their way out, they're looking for the ancillary stuff, electronics, maybe some cash, um, you know, a, a penny jar or something like that, maybe firearm if, if there happened to be something or it was known in the residence. But the jewelry is going to be a uh, an easy target for them. They always know where it is. And so the, these type of burglaries that you're talking about, it's in essence a distraction-type theft. They pose as somebody else. People involved buy in and they trust who they are. And the, the criminals that are working with the uh, the person that is front and center to the victim, they just have to go in the house and find the, the jewelry or any other valuables that they know are going to be there. But the jewelry, they're going to find it in the master bedroom, scoop it, and they're out before anybody even knows they were in. Kelly, you bring up an interesting word before. You said traceability of these items. And, you know, when, when I think of my law enforcement days, you know, tracing a, a wire transfer of money, um, you know, cryptocurrency, th there are ways to trace this stuff. But what is fascinating about the use of gold or precious metals or, or diamonds is the ability to change the form of that once it's transferred to somebody else. So, so if I steal uh, or I obtain a lot of stolen jewelry, uh, metals that could be melted down the diamonds can be reshaped and then to prove that that gold or that diamond was the one that was stolen is near impossible is that correct yeah that's 100 percent correct and that that's one of the again one of the appeals for these i was talking about disposability earlier mm. um part of that is you know, if you take a TV, if you stole a computer and you hit it with a sledgehammer, it's not worth anything to anybody. You know, you have to pay to get rid of it at the dump. You know, but if you take that same gold locket um, that's made with beautiful gold and you smash it with a hammer, take all the aesthetic value out of it, that's fine. But the intrinsic, tangible value is still there. It's the weight of mm -hmm. the metal itself. And um, uh, gold is so easily changeable and retains its value. But Diamonds are, are similar, too. You know, the, there's the, uh, the old um, story of the, uh, the French blue that was stolen out of the, the royal jewels from the French royal family uh, during the French Revolution and believed to have been smuggled across um, into the uh, United Kingdom and then cut into what we know now as the Hope Diamond and a few other diamonds there. Um, you know, that, that diamond itself was so... Um, recognizable, you would have had to have cut it in order uh, to conceal where it came from. And so that was done, changed its, uh, what it looked like. But even, even smaller, one, two-carat diamonds, um, if they have serial numbers inscribed on, those can be polished out rather easily. Facets can be put into diamonds to change them. 
um, inclusions that are in the stone that may in fact um, be evidence of how to identify that stone could actually be cut out. And depending on the value of the stone and whether or not um, it's, um, you know, return on investment, is there to actually go to that length and, and cut a stone? It have to be something spectacular. But there's methods to do that with diamonds and gemstones and not just gold and to conceal the, the uh, origin of them. You know, the, the, uh, one of the big things in, in uh, the industry right now is the traceability, being able to track a diamond um, from the retailer all the way back to the mine site. And it's, it's pretty spectacular, uh, the technology using blockchain technology for this, um, using chain of warranties where they inscribe a serial number into a diamond. And, um, you know, they're able to actually bring that back to when it came out of the ground and, and the bag of rough diamonds that are actually shipped from the mine at one time. But in the end, if that serial number is ever polished off, then that's lost. It's gone. And um, there's really no tracking it again after that. Hey, Kelly, throughout my career in law enforcement, I never really investigated uh, diamonds, precious metals being used as part of a scam or used for money laundering or any other types of crimes. But if I was a new investigator and starting out in, in law enforcement, uh, what would be some of the hurdles that I would see investigating these types of crimes? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest things is knowledge, you know, just about the industry, how the industry works, um, how people buy and sell these stones or metals, that kind of thing. The international nature of the sales of these commodities makes it difficult, especially when we're talking about organized crime. Knowing the industry, knowing the commodity is one thing, but then you, you add another layer and, and you make it international in nature. It's very difficult to investigate sometimes. The other thing about these, and particularly as it relates to diamonds and, and even more so with gemstones, is the subjectivity of valuation. And so you might have heard some time about the four C's of diamond valuation, carat, color, clarity, and cut. Those are the four C's that that are, are used to determine a value of, of a diamond. And um, a lot of those things, like carat weight, is pretty pretty specific. You'll say it's like a 1.02 carat diamond because it was weighed on the scale. But the color of a diamond might be uh, somewhat subjective. And in particular, the clarity scale of a diamond is even more subjective. So as that relates to things like trade-based money laundering or tax evasion, becomes very difficult to uh, investigate those types of criminal activities. And, you know, talking about money laundering and these type of um, uses of diamonds and gemstones, gemstones are even more so. They're even even um, more subjective in valuation than diamonds. And that's because there's not really an international benchmark for pricing on different types of gemstones like there is with diamonds. And so where one appraiser or one valuator in, let's say, Connecticut, uh, it, it might value a ruby, let's say, $1,000 a carat. Another one in Philadelphia might say it's uh, $1,400 a carat. Another one up in Canada might say it's um, $3,000 a carat, notwithstanding the uh, exchange on the dollar. <laughs> but uh, it becomes very subjective. So then here's one of the hurdles of that. You introduce something like that in court, what you expect the value of these commodities to be, and you know darn well that the defense is going to introduce their own expert that's going to provide a, a particularly different valuation than what 
your evaluator or your expert provided. And this happens almost without fail in these types of uh, cases and it becomes uh, very difficult to run these through prosecution, especially when we're talking about the value proposition of a stone. Hey, Kelly, you mentioned before, again, I want to go back on uh, residential burglaries where they're getting inside and stealing jewelry, uh, precious metals, things like that, and it's being resold. I'm just curious, where do you think it's being resold? Where do you see a lot of it? Is it on the street and bars? Is it social media? Or here in the States, I'm sure you have them in Canada too. Are you going into pawn shops and getting rid of them there? Yeah, big spectrum. Pawn shops for sure. Jewelry stores are huge for that. That's part of their business now. Um, because a jewelry store can buy jewelry off the street at a low price and recycle it. Um, they'll sell it, you know, they'll break, break the jewelry up and sell the stones to somebody else and the gold to a smelter and that kind of thing. But they, make, they profit on it. So it's, it's huge. They're buying jewelry off the street all the time. It's, it's really common, especially the independents, not so much a chain store. You know, the Internet is, is fantastic nowadays for uh, selling stolen products. Uh, that's definitely a, a way to go. And you've got to think about how small these things are. You know, somebody in, um, in uh, California could sell a diamond to somebody uh, over the Internet to somebody in uh, New York and ship it by FedEx for just a few bucks. It's not like shipping a, uh, a car motor or some chopped vehicle, you know, that's been stolen off the street. Really easy to do. And, um, yeah, so the, these are some of the modalities. Auction houses are common places for these things to be sold. And then one of the other things that happens um, quite regularly is the movement of stolen product out of a jurisdiction. So product stolen in Canada goes to the United States or goes to Europe, vice, you know, same thing. United States product will come to Canada or go to Europe, go to uh, Asia. And once, you know, it's out of that jurisdiction, it's hard to find. You know, it, one of the things you think about is the databases that, you know, maybe a, uh, a serial number diamond might be contained on. So it might be on a particular police database in the U.S., but it wouldn't be on that database in Canada. So if it comes to Canada and somebody runs that serial number, Unless they run it internationally, it's probably not going to get a hit. And so moving out of jurisdiction is a, uh, is a really common way of getting rid of the product as well. Yeah, you bring up a good point here in the United States. Obviously, we have the Jewelry Security Alliance, um, obviously very, very similar to the organizations that you're a part of in Canada, you know, where they're trying to track some of these stolen pieces of uh, jewelry. Uh, you know, stones, gemstones, and, and diamonds. But I want to bring up another uh, angle to this type of targeting of diamonds, jewelry, gemstones, is the fraud angle of things. And I've actually seen it both in law enforcement as well as in the private sector, where criminal groups are, or are targeting jewelry, either doing synthetic identity fraud, uh, bust-out schemes, or account takeovers and making purchases at jewelry stores for diamonds, gemstones, and, and other precious metals. How prevalent has that been in your investigations over the years as well? You know, um, there was always the trickle uh, of that, that you were seeing these um, every so often. But I have to say in the last couple of years, the last five years in particular, synthetic identities are, are really uh, increasing. And, and here's the kicker with the um, emergence of COVID-19. All the protective measures that uh, occurred not only in Canada but in the U.S. and um, the restrictions on store sales, people coming in the stores with um, masks on, in particular, 
online sales that jewelry stores never might have ever done before. But in order to keep their business alive, they ventured into that market space really without the experience of knowing, you know, how to um, how to identify when they might be getting uh, defrauded or what precautions to take as it relates to taking cards over the phone and that kind of thing. And and so uh, in the last few years, there's been a definite increase in that. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting that you brought that up because um, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners put out some statistics during COVID talking about um, where the increases were as it relates to types of frauds that were out there. Identity fraud and payment card fraud were among the highest, but um, that was at the very front end of COVID. But through COVID, those were predicted to be even higher because of these online sales that um, businesses that had never been in that space before were now moving into. So, uh, yeah, to your point, it's definitely something that's increasing. Yeah, Kelly, thank you. And, you know, it's funny, my last 10, 15 years in law enforcement, I'd I'd worked side jobs at some jewelry stores in the town that I worked in. They'd hired police officers there for security reasons. And like I said, we did see that uptick in fraud uh, with COVID, where a lot more phone orders were taking place, a lot more fraudulent attempts. So there needed to be multi-factor authentication, you know, to make sure that these transactions are legitimate. But it is growing, the synthetic identity fraud where people are actually creating identities out of thin air and they're developing a credit profile uh, under a fictitious name, date of birth, social security number, and then, uh, you know, eventually build up this credit to a point where they get it to the dollar amount they want to, and then they just max out the accounts with no intentions of ever paying it back. And when law enforcement tries to find them, they're a, an identity that doesn't exist. Yeah. So it makes yeah, it very cha- challenging. Yeah. 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 Huge so. challenge for law enforcement. A lot of victims out there to that. Yeah, Kelly, I got one more question. You know, I'm starting to get a handle on cryptocurrency, but now I'm thinking precious metals being used by uh, criminals. What do you see in the future for these precious metals being used for different types of crimes? Yeah, so, you know, um, obviously the trend line is um, moving in the direction of more crime in all aspects of criminal use of these products, all the ones I was talking about, you know, drug trafficking, um, fraud, smuggling, tax evasion. But you can really see it evolving even more so in uh, the realm of money laundering. And um, I see this commerce space as a great place for criminals to be. Again, I was talking about the subjectivity evaluation. Very hard to put um, your finger on the pulse of what exactly the uh, value of these commodities are. Gold, Save gold. Gold's fairly easy. Um, in fact, it's very easy, but uh, diamonds and gemstones, uh, they're very difficult. And the other thing, you know, criminals like to exploit the lane of least resistance. And, you know, and there's limited knowledge globally in this, but there's also differences in legislation country to country. And I'll give you a great example of that and as it relates to anti-money laundering legislation in Canada versus U.S. and dealers in precious metals and stones. There's only six gemstones that are covered under Canadian legislation, and there's about 26 covered in American legislation. So there's a big gap between those. So you think some of these stones that would have been covered in the U.S. aren't covered in Canada. They're not covered elsewhere, and so on and so forth. And so criminals are going to exploit that. 
They're going to look for where these gaps are, and they're going to um, use that to their advantage. The other thing I, I see, and we're talking about tracking, right, of these things. If you have a pile of diamonds, um, you have a pile of gold that, that is unmarked. It still has the same intrinsic tangible value to it, but law enforcement is not going to be able to track that. They're not going to be able to say that diamond came from here unless somebody gives it up and says, I stole it from there, you know, or unless it has a serial number that brings it back to there. Same with, you know, gold bars. That's a great point. That kind of thing. You know, there, there was a, a, a great uh, case um, that I worked on years ago and several tens of millions of dollars of laundering through the diamond industry. But in the vault that the individual had that was on this case, they had about a million five worth of diamonds that fit into basically the palm of your hand. And they're all the highest quality diamonds, all about one carat uh, each, the highest color, the highest clarity. Couldn't really replicate that parcel of diamonds. You can go into all the, the top jewelry suppliers in, in North America. And that was there for them to run. That was the run parcel. If they got caught, they just have to take that with them. And, and the values I'm giving you, $1.5 million, was um, about a 30 40% discount to the wholesale value. So the retail value, we would have been talking about $3.5 million worth of stones. But they could take that and run and not have to you know, worry about ever getting caught with these things. They weren't serial numbered or anything. So it's fantastic. They, they just need to you know, either uh, find a great place to store it in their house or get a safety deposit box in a friend's name, and they can uh, store all these commodities in a protected manner. You know, so that's the, that's the crime side of it. But on the other, on the flip side, you know, I already talked about blockchain technology, and, you know, we really didn't have, we had, you know, paper chains of warranties up to about 20 years ago where you could uh, say a diamond came from this mine, and it was hardly used. But now blockchain and being able to uh, trace a diamond back to uh, its source is really uh, coming on strong, and that's helpful, definitely, for law enforcement. And there's a lot of initiatives, too, um, you know, around environmental, uh, social, and governance, and there are responsibilities around those particular things that, that companies are are engaging in. And with that, it brings them online to being able to say that I got this product from here or I got this product from there. And it, it wasn't through an illicit channel then. And so that, that's helping, um, I think that will, if not, if not yet, it will help keep the, um, the good products on the rails. And then there's other things that are happening, too. I mean, some of the partnerships that are there spectacular. You mentioned the JSA, or the U.S. Um, Jewelers Security Alliance. Um, it's a spectacular organization. They, they are helping law enforcement on a daily basis. You know, they, they've got an ex-New York City police officer uh, working with them, uh, Scott Gurginski, and uh, he knows, like, uh, you know, the South American theft gangs. He, he knows the, the gypsies, uh, like the back of his hand. He's a real expert in these kind of things. And because he's sort of the Panama Canal of that information, he's able to help law enforcement from one state on, one, on the East Coast to another state on the West Coast and uh, doing a spectacular job of it down there. In Canada, we have an uh, organization that, uh, that I'm affiliated with, that's Jewelers Vigilant Canada. We do a similar thing that, uh, that the JSA does in the U.S., but we do this, of course, in Canada. And uh, these partnerships are not only bringing that awareness and knowledge 
to law enforcement, which, as I mentioned earlier, was a bit of a gap, um, but also helping with investigational techniques. And I, I think this is only going to get stronger in the future. And the last thing I'd say is about some of the unique things that are happening now, and there's a movement afoot as it relates to forensic jewelry, and there's a pioneer in that, um, a um, professor uh, at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Maria McLennan, is uh, quite possibly the world's first forensic jeweler, and she tracks jewelry as it relates to, you know, jewelry found on human remains in order to um, discover who that person might have been or as it relates to homicides and, and uh, things like that. And, and as that practice becomes more commonplace, as that, the knowledge and, and um, that field of study becomes broader, that's going to increase the, um, the value to law enforcement as well in terms of solving crimes. Yeah, as it relates well. to crimes. And Kelly, I got to tell you, um, thank you so much. You know, I love being a co-host of the IFCI Presents, The Protectors, uh, Mark and I. It's a joy for me to be a co-host, but I got a benefit from all our prior podcasts. I'm always learning something from our guests, and, and I like how passionate our guests are, and you are. You, you're dedicated to what you do, and uh, you're so knowledgeable. I've learned a lot today, and uh, that's the reason for our podcast. So I got a benefit as a co-host and an opportunity to learn about all these different types of crimes that are going out there now, learning about precious metal and being used for all these different types of crimes is uh, is outstanding. So, Kelly, we wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Now, i got to ask real quick, Kelly, you mentioned earlier, did you say in the United States and Western uh, Canada and the States purchasing $8 billion in diamonds a year? Did you mention something like to that effect? Yeah, it's it's a huge market, um, about $80 billion globally. $80 billion globally, because I wanted to mention, you know, the Carroll family participated in that because uh, my daughter got engaged and my oh son boy. Here we go. so they both got diamond <laughs> rings. So we we contributed to the economy Absolutely. this year. And, yeah. But Mike so didn't so tell you as he bought excited. a Fugazi. <laughs> Mike doesn't know what a Fugazi is, does he? <laughs> So you got to watch Donnie Brasco a little bit more, Mike. <laughs> I, I just saw it. I just saw That's it a couple awesome. days ago. That, that clip. Hey, Kelly, thank you so much. Like I said, it was a, a fascinating talk uh, today, like I said, and I learned a lot as well. You know what? Not only is he a subject matter expert, but he is actually an author as well. His book is called The Fifth C, The Criminal Use of Diamonds. And you know what, Kelly, we're going to have to get you back on, give our uh, audience a chance to read the book, and then have you come back on and uh, talk a little bit more about that and some of the trends you're seeing. Oh, I absolutely uh, relish that. Thank you for what you do, and uh, be safe out there. Well, you know, Kelly, we do have our annual training conference coming up last week of August. Uh, we might be giving you a call if you don't mind. We'd love to have you present there, too. Oh, that'd be my pleasure. All right, Kelly, be safe. Uh, thank you again for coming on to podcast, and uh, we wish you all the best, and we'll talk again. Well, thanks for the invite. It's, uh, it is absolutely my pleasure, and uh, nice to meet you guys all virtually. Hopefully, I'll get to meet you in person sometime. Sounds like a plan. Thank you, sir. All the best to you. Well, all right, Mike, I think that's a wrap. I want to thank our audience again for tuning in to IFCI Presents The Protectors. And I'm signing off. I'm Mark Solomon from Connecticut. And this is Mike Carroll from Chicago. We'll see you at the next podcast. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. 
With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guest opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.